Good afternoon. It's Sunday, September 8th, and you are listening to the College Football Daily, dedicated to catching you up on and breaking down the day's college football news. My name is Connor Tapp, and I'm joined by 24-7 Sports National College Football writer Chris Hummer. Chris was on the scene last night for LSU's big win over Texas at DKR. Chris, how are we feeling? A little tired. It was a, it was a good four-hour uh, Saturday night game, but no complaints here. It was one of the better college football games I've seen in a while. And uh, that, LSU, that LSU offense is looking like a Big 12 offense, and I think that's a scary thing for uh, teams in the SEC. Yeah, so let's get right into it. If you missed our recap episode last week, the way we've decided to break this down is into teams that are having a Sunday fun day. You know, they're out at brunch taking some Instagram pictures of their of their uh, of their eggs Benedict and uh, draining you know, those mimosas yeah draining those mimosas just having a great time and then we've also got the people with the Sunday scaries who are kind of dreading heading into the office on Monday and sitting next to a rival fan and maybe one cubicle over who's going to tease them about what their favorite team the mess that they got into over the weekend. So uh, you mentioned LSU. Let's get right into it. LSU 40, LSU, by the way, having a fun day. They're having a fun day here. Uh, LSU 45, Texas 38. Um, by the end of this game, both of these offenses were just absolutely unstoppable. And really the decisive moment in the game might have happened in the first quarter. UT's first three drives of the game, they come away with zero points despite getting into LSU territory in all three of them and to the LSU goal line on two of them. So, Chris, you were there. You kind of got into it, but big picture takeaways from this one. Yeah, well, first of all, as somebody who was in Austin last night, I can tell you LSU fans didn't even have to wait until Sunday to have a fun day. They were <laughs> uh, they were pretty lit last yeah. night. But, uh, yeah, I just... I think this is a pretty momentous game for LSU, both in the short term and the long term. Short term, obviously, your chances of reaching the college football playoffs without a loss are significantly better. But in the long term, I think what we saw was kind of the unleashing of skill talent that LSU's always had but has seemed to squander. Uh, I think this was a team that had Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry on the same team and still didn't crack the top 40 in terms of passing yards per game, uh, their junior season before they left for the NFL. So that's kind of been the reputation of LSU. But uh, Ed Orgeron made the decision to hire Joe Brady as their passing game coordinator this offseason from the New Orleans Saints. He opened up the offense, and the results were pretty evident last night. LSU skill talent, along with that type of system, works. I was talking to Jamar Chase, who is one of their receivers that cleared the uh, 100 yard 100 yard mark after the game last night, and he said LSU went five wide on three occasions. I asked him how many times they did that the season before. He said never. So that's just kind of an example of how different LSU system was, and what it was was extremely effective. Over 500 yards of offense against Texas. It was really difficult to envision a scenario in which Texas would have slowed LSU down much last night. They kind of did what they wanted at will, and they were aggressive. And I think having that type of system with a team as talented as LSU is really going to pay dividends when you're playing Alabama and when you're playing Georgia, because this is a team that can now score with anyone, and you didn't feel that way about LSU in the past. 
Yeah, Jamar Chase, one of three LSU wide receivers who eclipsed the century mark in receiving yards last night. And, you know, there will be people who pick apart this this game and say, oh, well, it, it's just a Big 12 defense. But, I mean, Texas has a young secondary, but it's a talented secondary. And, 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 the, and the point, and LSU wasn't even doing this against bad secondaries before. 471 yards passing. That's insane from an LSU quarterback. It, it is, hold on, I got a stat here. Uh, Burrow was the third LSU quarterback ever to throw for 400 yards in a game and the first to do it against a ranked opponent since 2002 when Rohan Davey lit up Illinois in the Sugar Bowl. So, I mean, you could explain away and nitpick, but I mean, the fact is that in the context of LSU's offense over the years, as we've been waiting for it to break through, the fact that they are capable of taking this step, as you said, is a signal that they're here to compete for real, finally, in the SEC West. Yeah, and I think I think Ed Orgeron said it best uh, post game last night. Uh, he's been at LSU for a while, even before he was the head coach. He was a uh, defensive line coach at LSU, and he essentially said it took a couple of miscues to get here, but we're finally there. And like Ed Orgeron believes he has a system that can help LSU contend for championships. And if last night was any evidence, it's really hard to argue with that. And this thought just popped into my head, so feel free to challenge it. I haven't really interrogated it very much. But as you're saying that, I'm, th- I'm reminded of Dabo Sweeney and his early missteps with more, more defensive coordinators uh, and then kind of tweaking and find- finally finding the right fit in Brent Venables and what that was able to unlock in the Clemson program. Other other comparisons, you probably would say that Dabo Sweeney and Ed Orgeron are maybe a similar style head coach in, in the way they kind of delegate and kind of are like the hype man for their team, I guess. I don't know. How, do we hate this comparison? What are we thinking? Actually, I don't, I don't hate it at all, especially because I would even say that Dabo Sweeney essentially saved his job by hiring Chad Morris, I believe, in the third year of his tenure to run his offense. They uh, almost completely shifted the way they approached it offense, Chad Morris kind of brought in a bit of a uh, power spread system and it worked for Dabo Sweeney. And he kind of, it took a couple of years of recruiting to kind of build up to the elite talent level they needed to compete for championships, but they took off. And I kind of agree. Uh, Dabo Sweeney is an elite recruiter at Orgeron's an elite recruiter. Um, I'm not sure if either one of them are considered X's and O's guys. That's probably not a fair thing to say about either coach. They wouldn't be where they are without being so, but they've never been considered elite coordinators or elite. It's not what they hang their hat on. Yeah. I don't think Dabo Sweeney was ever a coordinator. And if I remember correctly, Ed Ogeron, I don't believe he was a coordinator either. He was a long time defensive line coach. Yeah. Yeah. So in that way, yeah, they, and Ed Ogeron's got a head start on where Dabo was because LSU by the uh, 24 seven sports team can team talent composite rankings is the fourth most talented team in the country. So they already have the pieces to make it work once the system's in place. So Chris, we haven't really talked about this very much through a Texas lens, but I do want to hit on that because from my perspective, I'm thinking overall stock up on Texas here. Uh, This LSU secondary is really good. And Sam Ellinger was still able to move the ball at will in the second half uh, at 461 yards of total offense and five total touchdowns for Ellinger. And man, those Texas wide receivers 
I knew Colin Johnson was good. I didn't know as much about DuVernay and some of the other guys. But man, what a big, physical, impressive group. Yeah, I think, honestly, people forget how naturally talented Texas is sometimes. Devin DuVernay uh, was, I think, the number 38 overall player in the country in the 2016 class. He came to Texas late after kind of the Baylor scandal happened. But he's, he's an ultra-talented guy. And I talked to... Um, Jacoby Stevens, LSU safety, he was a five-star a couple of years ago. And I asked him a question about like how he felt about Texas like, going to be in the game. And he said, that is an elite team, and I would not at all be shocked if they ran the table the rest of the way. And I know, I know the loss probably hurts. And I live in Austin, and I'm well aware that moral victories are kind of something that Texas wants to shove in the past. Like Texas wants to be all the way back. But I don't think you can exit a game like this if you're Texas and be annoyed at the performance or frustrated with by the performance. If anything, considering that the team returned, I think the fewest starters in the big 12 and um, I think the 123rd most production in the FBS to have played a team of that caliber that close in week two of the season kind of speaks volumes about where Texas could be going in the future. And I, I actually think when Texas plays LSU next year, and Texas is a little more experienced in Baton Rouge. Uh, Texas will be a legitimate national title contender then. And I think this game will kind of help springboard Texas a little bit. Up next for LSU, Northwestern State at Vanderbilt versus Utah State. All that to say, on October 12th, when, when they play Florida, they're probably going to be undefeated. As long as Florida holds up its end of the bargain, that could be a really high-stakes clash. Um, so... Uh, it looks like we're going to be talking about LSU being very high up in the polls for quite a while here. Tennessee is a returning member of the Sunday Scaries <laughs> column. Um, not the only one, not the only returning member, uh, but I think the only one that actually lost. Uh, BYU 29, Tennessee 26. This one goes into two overtimes. Tennessee was up 13-3 to heading into halftime, but Jarrett Garnt... Uh, I'm sorry, we have a new pronunciation on Jarrett's name. Let me... Garantano. It's a different pronunciation on the on the second A there, or the third A. Garantano. Did, did, he, uh, did, he, did he just change his name after week one to kind of uh, put the uh, bad juju in the past? <laughs> I think, I think this... Because if so, he might want to consider another name change. Yeah, maybe. I, I, I do think that he got, he got this uh, pronunciation clarification into the preseason media guide, so... Uh, Maybe uh, if he needs to go into WITSEC later on, uh, he'll want to change it again. But um, uh, So Jared Garantano throws a pick on the first drive out of the locker room, and then all of a sudden we're in a rock fight. And, uh, be, and Chris, you were just watching the final sequences of this game that led to the overtime. So it's probably a little bit fresher in your mind than it is in mine. But So what, what happened there? Yeah, essentially, Tennessee is up, I believe, uh, three with 30 seconds left. They have BYU on third and six on their own 20-yard line. The game should be over at this point. You just can't let somebody get behind you. BYU's out of timeouts, I believe. And then the impossible, or if you've watched Tennessee football lately, probably the likely happened, which was a 61-yard completion down the right sideline, uh, Tennessee's corner just completely blew the coverage. Safety missed the tackle. 
BYU's uh, receiver kept running for a while. They went up and spiked the ball and hit the game tying field goal. And it's, it's just kind of yet another embarrassing moment for Tennessee. And it's, it's the type of way you should never lose. If you're a well-coached team, the one thing you can't do in that situation is let somebody get behind you. And not only did that happen, it happened twice because the safety took a terrible angle and missed a tackle on the play. So ultimately as uh, I'm sure those listening at home know BYU went on to win in overtime and uh, Tennessee is now staring 0-2 in the face. Yeah, and it's not so much the fact that Tennessee loses to BYU. BYU is a good team, and this and the line on this was very close. So, like, this was an outcome that was it was within very much in the realm of possibility that BYU might win it. But it's for Tennessee so often it's the way they end up losing. It's it's that blown coverage in in the clutch. It's the fact that twice they needed fourth. They needed one yard to gain on fourth down in BYU territory and got stuffed for a no gain twice. Like this, that is not something that should be happening when you're Tennessee going up against BYU. And and BYU's good, but they're not, you know, they're, they're independent, obviously. So it's not accurate to say they're G5, but they're closer to G5, like a good, very good AAC team than like good P5 team. So this just should not be happening. And really what's maybe more concerning for Tennessee is maybe if you beat Georgia State, you can afford to lose this game. But and And I don't think that anyone after 14 games into Jeremy Pruitt's tenure can realistically be talking about the hot seat right now. But... When you look at what's coming up on the schedule and you start to imagine what the reality of Tennessee maybe not getting its first FBS win until November might actually look like. I mean, just think about what it's going to be like for those Tennessee fans to be stewing over this for months. Like, it's this could get bad, right? Or what do you think? Yeah, and I think I think what you're saying is right. It's really important to take the loss to BYU uh, with some context. I think on the surface, like a loss to BYU isn't that bad. It's how they lost in addition to uh, kind of everything that built with the Georgia uh, State loss a week ago. And speaking of that schedule, they've got Chattanooga next week. That should be a win, obviously. Not a sure thing, given what we've seen from Tennessee so far this year, but I feel safe giving them a win there. After that, they go to Florida. They've got Georgia at home, Mississippi State at home. They go to Alabama, and then they play South Carolina at home before hosting UAB. And if you watched UAB last year, I don't think that's a sure thing either. So you're looking at maybe one and seven, one and eight heading into November. Like it could be an extremely long year for uh, Tennessee and Kentucky, Missouri, and Vanderbilt at the end of the year aren't sure things either at this point. So. Even if you're looking at Jeremy Pruitt, yeah, I was just gonna say, even if you're looking at this best case scenario, like you have to win all of your toss ups at this point and not get upset again in order to make a bowl. And I think probably anything less than that is pretty disappointing to Tennessee fans. Yeah, and I guess South Carolina is technically a toss up, and Mississippi State's technically a toss up, but Florida, Georgia, Alabama are losses. I think you're looking at best seven wins for Tennessee at this point, and I. 
looking at the way they played earlier this year, I don't, I don't see that as a realistic scenario. Tennessee's probably missing a bowl yet again. Yeah. And when you're Jeremy Pruitt, you really needed to have that program take a step this year, and it just doesn't really look like it's going to happen. Ohio State is having a Sunday fun day. They are going through it for a nice, breezy bike ride in the state park and just letting the sun kiss their their forehead and having a great time because they've just beaten Cincinnati 42 to nothing. Justin Fields plugging right into that Ohio State offense, 20 of 25, 224 yards passing, 42 more yards on the ground, four total touchdowns. And Ohio State is dominating teams, and we haven't hit Big Ten play, so that's an important caveat. But they are beating the beatable teams on their schedule in a way that I haven't seen them do since they were running through the back half of that 2014 schedule on their way to a national championship. Yeah. And I, I think it's, I think first of all, like for context, Cincinnati is a extremely impressive group of five team. They won 11 games a season ago. I expected them to cover coming into this week. Maybe I didn't have enough faith in Ohio state early in the season, but Ohio state, dominated this game and that's that's a big deal like luke fickle knows ohio state's personnel his former head coach there he's from that state he had that team ready to go and they got hit in the mouth by a buckeye team that if you just look at pure talent is as talented as anybody in the country and ryan day just kind of has that thing rolling along i believe justin fields was pretty pretty dang perfect he was 20 of 25 for 224 yards and two touchdowns J.K. Dobbins kind of uh, with the zone read back in play, given uh, Justin yeah. Fields' ability to run. Looks like the J.K. Dobbins we saw as a freshman. He averaged 8.3 yards a carry on Saturday. And LSU looks – or I'm sorry, Ohio State looks great defensively, something uh, they had issues with a season ago. And uh, I don't think you can really look at anybody but Ohio State as the Big Ten favorite kind of entering week three. They look fantastic. Yeah, I feel, and this transitions us into our next team with the Sunday Scaries, the Michigan Wolverines, who I had as my Big Ten winner heading into the season. I would very much like to change that now because uh, Michigan, <laughs> Same. unconvincing week one, still unconvincing in week two. And Chris, you had a good tweet about this, so I'll, I'll clear the lane and let you have the floor because I, I think you had a good, really good point pointing out the differences between this Michigan near miss against army and Oklahoma's near slip up a year ago. Yeah. And obviously Oklahoma went on to reach the college football playoffs. I'm sure if I'm a Michigan fan, I'm trying to convince myself that everything, everything is okay by saying Oklahoma did it. Why not Michigan? But that Oklahoma team averaged 8.8 yards per play against army. Um, It was an issue of a lack of possessions army, won the time of possession by almost 20 minutes that day, as opposed to the inability to move the ball. Michigan, on the other hand, averaged 4.5 yards per play. So almost half the amount of yards per play Oklahoma did a season ago against Army. Michigan was just careless with the football. They they had three lost fumbles in the first half, which is more than they had in the entire 2018 season. Uh, So if you're Michigan coming out of this game, you're really wondering if that... Josh Gaddis, uh offense is going to work. I came out of the game wondering if Jim Harbaugh took the play calling away from Josh Gaddis in the second half because it looked a lot different. Uh, they spread it out a little bit less. They were running a little bit more. They were more conservative. 
and I don't think Jim Harbaugh is ever going to admit it. And this is obviously just speculation on my part, but I wonder uh, if the control of that offense is going to shift a little coming out of this mm. game because Michigan just could not move the ball. And that's the problem because their offensive line was supposed to be the strength of the team and they were getting bullied by a much strong or much smaller army team. Michigan couldn't run the ball. They couldn't do anything consistently. And it's a, it's a pretty big concern exiting this game. I really, at least just my point about this coming out of the weekend is like Michigan is like, um, the guy that just got broken up with and checks Instagram and see his girlfriend out on the beach with some like really nice pictures. And you're just over there eating ice cream on the couch. That's how I look at Michigan versus Ohio state coming out of this weekend. And, uh, it, Michigan's got a lot of work to do if it hopes to be on Ohio state's level by the time November comes around. Cause right now there's a pretty significant gap between the two of them. Yeah. Um, it, it, I'm, I'm really concerned about Shea Patterson. It really looked like his inaccuracy was going to cost them this game. And like you were hinting at, I mean, there, I don't, I don't, there's probably nobody in Army's starting 22 that would like even have been a serious offer for Michigan. So there is just no reason to be messing around with Army, you know, impressive as they are, they they had a real nice win streak coming into this one and have turned around from what they from what they had been for for the past decade or so. But there's just no reason to be playing like this in the big house. And if it, it, I was talking about LSU earlier and how it felt like for years we'd been expecting something to finally click into place and for that offense to get back to functioning the way it had been in the early aughts. And I've been assuming that that's going to happen at some point with Michigan, maybe because Harbaugh got that chip turned around so quickly in year one. I've just been expecting, okay, when are we going to hit the the next gear here? And it's never really happened. Maybe, maybe it's time to start accepting that maybe it'll never happen. I don't know. Um, You mentioned Josh Gaddis and how disappointing the performance has been from his offense. Something a point Trey has been hammering is either Maryland or Michigan got the genius behind Alabama's 2018 offense. <laughs> and both Michigan thinks they got it and Maryland thinks they got it, but maybe only one of them is right. So far, it's looking like it was Mike Loxley. Uh, Maryland rolled up 63 points on Syracuse in a 43-point victory over the... And by the way, Syracuse number 21 ranking was really not deserved, so that's worth mentioning. But So Maryland beats Syracuse 63-20. to uh, The story here from this particular game is Maryland's rushing attack. 7.9 yards per carry on 45 carries for 354 total yards and six touchdowns on the ground. Um, and and Maryland had 79 points in week one against Howard. I guess we'll find out a little bit more what the Terps are all about on September 27th when Penn state comes to town. But for right now, you're one of the Mike Loxley era is off to one heck of a start. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I, and I would like to point out that Mike Loxley has more talent than people probably think. Uh, Barton Simmons, tweeted this out on Saturday, but I'm going to steal it because he's a smart guy and I sound smart when I steal from him. Mm-hmm. Um, Maryland ranks 27th nationally in the team talent composite. That's not a top 25 team, but that's enough to make noise. And uh, for context, Syracuse ranks 60th. 
So like Maryland is more talented talented than people might imagine. And if uh, Mike Loxley has this offense rolling like this early, Maryland could make some noise in the Big Ten East. Uh, you could make an argument that this is more of a Colorado Sunday fun day than a Nebraska Sunday scary, but I think we technically got it slotted as a Sunday scary for Nebraska. The Huskers fall 31 to 34 in overtime after having a 17 to nothing lead at the half. Uh, interesting thing about this one is that Colorado couldn't really run the ball and LaVisca Chenault was their fourth leading receiver uh, and he was kind of banged up throughout the game, but they still found a way to move the ball and score a ton of points in the second half, 31 uh, to be specific, I suppose. For Nebraska, I guess maybe the reason why this is such a concern is that we now, I think we know that the creakiness we saw in week one against South Alabama is real. Uh, adding to the mystery, I guess, would maybe be that it was the Nebraska offense that was looking suspect against South Alabama. And now for two quarters, at least, of the Colorado game, it was the defense looking suspect. So I don't know where that leaves you, but now all of a sudden in a year where people were kind of picking you to win the Big Ten West, Wisconsin is still yet to allow a single point. Um, and who knows, maybe that'll still be the case after they play Michigan next week. Um, but uh, yeah, so year two for Scott Frost, off to a bit of a bumpier start than I think a lot of people anticipated. Yeah, and I think with Nebraska, at this point, like I, I do expect Scott Frost to do well there in the long run. I think Scott Frost is one of the best coaches in the country. But at this point, I think it's time for people to acknowledge that Nebraska is what it is at this point, which is a team coming off a 4-8 and eight season that clearly still has some issues. Nebraska might contend in the future, and Nebraska might push some elite teams from the Big Ten. But as of right now, I think we need to hit pause on the Nebraska hype because – the reality of the situation is this is still a team in the rebuilding process. Two big wins. Uh, but oh, yep. I was going to transition through and uh, bring it to UNC. Uh, that is a team that did not have a lot of hype, but North Carolina scored yet another big win this week over Miami in the ACC play. So if you're keeping score at home, Mac Brown has wins over his former defensive coordinators, Will Muschamp and mm. Manny Diaz. In weeks one and two, and uh, if you're a North Carolina fan, it's not basketball season. You weren't expecting much. You have to be feeling really good about the Mac Brown era, and uh, I hope he keeps dancing. Yeah, I didn't really get to watch a lot of this one because it was kind of caught between some exciting finishes and I think the started Texas LSU, but I do want to go back and watch more of it because some really interesting little details to mine out of the box score here. I did see... Uh, Sam Howell, the, the game-winning drive uh, for for UNC and the Sam Howell pass to, I believe it was Daz Newsom. And, uh, man, he's just he's just got it, man. Like, I was, I was expecting a lot more errors, and I was expecting maybe the aggressiveness of the Miami defense to force some interceptions or bad decisions from Sam Howell. But, man, 274 yards, two touchdowns, 11.7 yards per pass attempt. And, I mean, think back to... The, the curve we were gate, uh, grading you know, redshirt junior Felipe Franks on against this Miami defense two weeks ago and, and trying to say, oh, well, you know, him having kind of a meh day is not so bad because this Miami defense is so good. And then you've got Sam Howell walking in 
two games into his career and lighting up the Hurricanes secondary. So really impressive stuff out of him. Uh, and, you know, they've got at Wake next week, which actually I think is a spot to look out for. Uh, you, you might lose that game if you're North Carolina. And, that, and App State will be a tough out the next week as well. But it, there's a pretty good chance that they come out of that 4-0 And then you're headed for September 28th against Clemson in Chapel Hill. Maybe that's a game day spot. I don't know what the uh, what the other matchups are that weekend, but I know they kind of seek out opportunities to go to places they don't go a whole lot. I assume they haven't been to Chapel Hill very much, if at all. Um, So that could maybe be a lot of fun. But uh, Jaron Williams had a pretty nice day. Uh, 30 of 39, 309 yards. Uh, two touchdowns, I believe. So, uh, again, I didn't see much of this one. So I, I'm, I'd be curious to go back and see what was going on there because he had kind of a – he looked good, but, like, the stats weren't great against uh, against Florida in week one. But Miami's all of a sudden 0-2. So, like – Yeah, Miami, Miami, had, to, Miami had to settle uh, for a lot of field goal attempts, and one of those was missed. So that would have sent the game to overtime early in the first quarter. But they had a lot of long drives that ended on downs or then field goal attempts. They just couldn't put the ball in the end zone. That kind of made the difference. Miami uh, Miami had two missed field goals in the game, and they actually outgained North Carolina by about 100 yards. They just kind of didn't convert when it counted. Mm. Uh, So UNC went out and hired the old coach, working out well so far. Kansas went out and hired the old coach, and it's off to a rocky start. Coastal Carolina 12, Kansas 7. Uh, I mean, when you can't get out of single digits against a Sunbelt team, that's tough. Uh, the Jayhawks couldn't even really get Puka Williams going. Uh, 99 yards on 24 carries is decent, but not from your superstar running back against uh, uh, Coastal Carolina. Um, so I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, I'm not super shocked to see that this happened. But on the other hand, it makes me worry that we're headed toward the worst case scenario for how this Les Miles experiment is going to turn out in Lawrence. Yeah, and to be fair to Les Miles, and I would point this out, he inherited, much like David Beatty did, a scholarship situation that's not ideal. I think they're in the low 70s right now in terms of available scholarships. And he also inherited a roster from a talent perspective that's been – kind of ravaged because of a strategy David Beatty and uh, Charlie Weiss before him utilized, which was loading up the roster with Juco players. So that's why they're short on scholarships and they're short on upperclassmen at this point as well. So Kansas didn't exactly um, have the most talented roster coming into this. So it it was going to take a while either way for Les Miles to get it going. What I would say is Kansas is recruiting pretty well right now. I believe they are in the top half of the Big 12 in terms of a recruiting class in uh, 2020. And it's going to take a couple of cycles for Les to kind of get his guys in there before Kansas ever gets going again. Because unlike North Carolina, which did have some talent left over from the Larry Fedora era, I, people, people will kind of forget Larry Fedora was competing for ACC championships two years before it kind of spiraled out of control. So there was, uh, there was stuff left in the tank. Kansas is a completely different job. And uh, – it wasn't great. Moving to Coastal Carolina is never great. Scoring seven points against Coastal Carolina is never great. But it was going to take uh, less 
a year or two to kind of get this thing off the ground, no matter what. And you're going to, you're going to see results like this throughout the season. Southern Cal was putting the final touches on its 45 to 20 win over Stanford at the beginning of its Sunday fun day. If you're on the East coast, uh, USC fell behind 17 to three in this one, but went on a 42 to three run to put the Cardinal away. That comeback was powered by 28 of 33 passing from Keaton Slovis for 370 seven yards, three touchdowns, and 11.9 yards per attempt average. And you think Air Raid, maybe a lot of quick passes and yards after the catch, but there were some big boy throws into tight windows there from Slovis. Uh, Really impressive stuff. Looks like they're not going to miss a beat, and maybe this is even an upgrade over JT Daniels. Yeah, and you wouldn't think a a five-star quarterback, and that's what JT Daniels was, five-star quarterback going down with an injury, and you're and searching somebody who I believe uh, we had ranked in the thousands in the top two, four, seven will be an upgrade, but um, he looked frankly, just fantastic. They scored, they started the game down um, 17 to three. And then they had USC put together six touchdowns on its next seven drives to kind of take a commanding lead in the game. And that's, that's all due to Slovis. He played impeccable football. And I would say the area is not something that you enter into and just kind of learn right away. That system is based on timing. That system is based on um, quick reads. And if he is meshing with his receivers uh, this well early, that speaks dividends to their um, long-term chances because if he's got that kind of connection going, he might not ever give this job up because Stanford, Stanford isn't like the elite defense we saw of yesteryear kind of like in the early 2010s when uh, David Shaw was consistently competing for national championships. But it is a good defense, and USC tore it to shreds. And this is exactly what USC needed heading into a slate that includes BYU, Utah, Washington, and Notre Dame over their next four games. Uh, Clay Helton's job is still kind of hanging in limbo, and a performance like this is a big boost to him and the Trojans. Yeah, for Stanford, I mean, their running game was looking pretty good early on, but then it just totally stalled out. And the concerns about how that offensive line and that rushing attack is underperforming so massively continue. And last year, it fell to KJ Costello to kind of carry this team, or this offense anyway, on his back. And I think we saw that Davis Mill is not quite ready to do that. Uh, can't quite hang with with, with uh, USC in that regard. So uh, looks like it's going to be another rocky year for the Cardinal um, unless they get, unless they get healthy here in a hurry. Uh, And the PAC 12 in general had, uh, I guess you would characterize it as an up and down day, maybe more down than up. We had uh, uh, particularly in the PAC 12 North, uh, you had a lot of bad news. Uh, Stanford going down Oregon state, Losing to Hawaii, the second Pac-12 team Hawaii has beaten this year, having previously beaten Arizona. Uh, Cal upset Washington in a game that I believe they like started playing at 4 a.m. Eastern or something crazy after a weather delay <laughs> of some sort. Um, so I have no idea what happened in that one. Uh, but that was a bit of a shock. Um, and then you had, and this is in the South, but uh, San Diego State beating UCLA. And man, so you're looking at that Pac-12 schedule, uh, that Pac-12 uh, um, standings and looking at, all right, so who are our contenders here? And I guess you're thinking 
maybe maybe Wazoo's going to do it again. Maybe Oregon can overcome that loss to Auburn. And, and I mean, they, they've got a hill to climb and there'll be plenty of debates about their schedule. But I think if they went out, they're probably in or very close to in the college football playoff. And But then, so then in the South, you're counting on uh, Southern Cal to keep it going, which, I mean, last night looked good, but I, I feel like I've been burned quite a lot by counting on Southern Cal to keep it going over the course of whole season. I guess Utah, but I, I don't know. I mean, it's the, 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 the teams you were counting on are really starting to to fall and rack up some losses. Not not many teams in the Pac-12 with an unblemished record at this point. Yeah, it's just it's not a. I don't want to say it's a bad look for the league because I don't I don't think the league like showed itself poorly in that Oregon Auburn game. I think Oregon had they changed maybe one or two things they did offensively, and I think they got a lot less aggressive in the second half. Uh, would be a legitimate college football playoff threat, but. Utah was only up four on Northern Illinois at halftime. They didn't exactly play well. Um, Washington got upset. This is, you could argue, the third year in a row where the two most likely teams to come out of the Pac-12 suffered losses uh, in September or August, I guess in this case with Oregon. So you're, I mean, Oregon could run the table. Utah could run the table or have one loss and come out of there. But if you're, two weeks into the season, if you're looking at conferences with the least likely chance to reach a college football playoff, you'd again have to point to the PAC 12. And there is a, there is a perception problem in that league. They need some team to kind of emerge as a legitimate contender. And after two weeks, it's kind of hard to know who that would be at this point. Clemson did not blow me out of the water, but I got to think they're feeling pretty good after having, Maybe the most difficult team on their schedule come into Death Valley and the Tigers walk away with a 24 to 10 victory over the Aggies. You know, uh, Clemson didn't really let Texas A&M do much of anything on this one uh, from um, from an offensive perspective, except for pulling off a backdoor cover uh, to to, to uh, make it 24 to 10 instead of 24 to three. Uh, but I mean. Clemson, second week in a row, not super pretty all the time. But to me, they we saw that LSU could win a Big 12 game. I think this we saw that Clemson can win an SEC game. And, and, that, and that's yeah. something you might need to do uh, because when you get to the college football playoff. Yeah, and I, I actually think it's a testament to how freaking good Clemson is that we're talking about what was basically a multi-touchdown win that was a backdoor cover. They scored at the last minute for Texas A&M to kind of make it a 14-point game. We're looking at a game where Clemson didn't play its best, but it still beat the number 12 team in the country handedly. Yeah. Like the game was not particularly close, and that is a pretty big gap between Clemson and a team that's supposed to be similarly talented. I think people forget... Texas A&M a year ago was the only team to play Clemson to single digits the entire season. So that's a team that has pushed um, the Tigers in the past. And Clemson kind of just swatted them aside. And as you mentioned with the schedule, Clemson, like if you look at it, they're probably not going to play another top 25 team all season. Yeah, uh, Syracuse was supposed to be that team and they're no longer, they're not going to be ranked after this loss to Maryland. And unless like North Carolina jumps into the top 25 or I, I was about to say Florida State, but that would be that's <laughs> something. Yeah, uh, get but, to them uh, in a minute. <laughs> they're not going to face anybody else. Yeah, but yeah, it's like a super easy slate for Clemson the rest of the way. This was their biggest test, and 
I think we you just write it uh, comes in and permanent marker in your college football playoff field if um, these first two weeks are any indication, and they're only going to get better. I mean, Trevor Lawrence has just kind of looked mortal the last two weeks, and as the season goes on, I fully expect him to start getting into a rhythm. And once that happens, it's going to be a scary proposition for the rest of college football. Yeah, it looks like they're really trying to see this Trevor Lawrence kind of a quasi-running quarterback out thing out to its uh, fullest potential. And I, it's, I mean, they Clemson had some big plays in their offense, but in terms of like a down-to-down efficient offense, like we haven't really seen that. And they've got plenty of time to figure it out, by the way. I mean, we've been talking about their schedule. They don't have no, according to ESPN's FPI, no team, no single team left on their schedule has a better than 7% chance of upsetting them <laughs> until they travel to South Carolina on November 30th. The Gamecocks have a 14.6% chance of uh, pulling a miracle. Um, so, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, plenty of time to figure it out. I think you've cleared easily the biggest hurdle here. So uh, it, it's just a matter of how how well do, how well are the Tigers clicking when it gets to conference title game time and then uh, college football playoff time. Uh, you know, maybe... Maybe there's a chance someone upsets him along the way. I could not tell you who it would be to do that, but you think they probably get in as the defending national champions with one loss, even if even if that does happen. And it feels like such a stretch to even be talking about that as a possibility. Um, but that's where we are with Clemson. And, you know, in <laughs> Chris, the last two times you've been on, I feel like I've been kind of talking negatively about Clemson, but it's just like, we hold them to such a high bar, it, them in Alabama, that when they're they look a little glitchy at all, we're like, "Huh, is this is this going to be a problem?" And then, oh no, no, it's not a problem. It's fine. It turns out. Um, yeah, it's it's like it's the Serena, like Serena Williams, I believe, has lost in three straight major finals, and we talk about it like the world's ending. At the end of the day, like Serena Williams still made it to. I mean, sorry for the tennis reference for people at home, but she still made it to three straight major finals, which is extremely difficult to do. It's not like she's broken and she's still performing well. And Clemson's far from broken right now. And really all it, all it tells me is if Clemson can beat a team like Texas A&M at their best, like they're going to be really, really good by season's end when they're really clicking. So uh, I'm, if it, if they lost, it'd be a different story, but I understand why we talk about Clemson in this way, but I really don't think there's much to worry about with the Tigers uh, exiting week two. They they look like what they are, which is the defending national champion. Are we worried about Kellen Mond? I, I feel like it was a pretty disappointing performance from him, given the amount of hype that was kind of surrounding him entering year two under Jimbo. I don't, I don't know if we're worried. I would say what Kellen Mond is, or was entering the season was a second tier SEC quarterback. What Texas A&M needed Kellen Mond to do was elevate from a second tier SEC quarterback to an elite SEC quarterback, help the program kind of take that leap. And at least against Clemson, um, who Kellen Mond, I would argue had his best game of his career against previously, just kind of didn't do that. He just, he looks like Sam Ellinger did early last night. Uh, Sam got better as the game went along. 
But Kellen uh, just like missed some throws he should hit. And I, I don't know if I'm worried about him over the long term. He was going against the probably the second most talented defense he's going to face all year, behind maybe Alabama or LSU. I don't know if I'm I don't know if I'm necessarily worried about him, but I would say that A&M needed him to take a step that it looks like he probably hasn't taken. And what that's going to result in most likely is another eight or nine win season at best for Texas A&M. So, I mean, he's in his junior season. A&M needs him to take that step for them to move any further. And they don't really have any other options behind him. So I guess in that sense, you're concerned. But I still think he's a, I think he's an above average SEC quarterback. I just don't think he's made the leap many of us expected. Our final Sunday Scary nominee is another returning member to the category alongside Tennessee. FSU 35, ULM 34. The Knolls win in overtime thanks to a missed Warhawks PAT. I was over here going to bat for FSU after they lost to Boise. I was saying the offense, yes, they went away Disappeared in the second half, but the first half happened too. Uh, maybe some concerns on the defensive side of the ball, but you're going against a good Boise State team with a good, really good uh, quarterback. Um, so, so maybe we should take this as yes, the outcome is disappointing, but overall things are headed in the right direction. I am feeling pretty nervous about that take uh, here on September eighth. I actually, honestly, coming out of the game, I didn't disagree with you. Um, for everything that comes with the name Kendall Bryles, he runs a system that is unusual in college football and rather insular. Uh, it's been nothing but successful over time uh, at places like Baylor, at places like Syracuse. And I thought, as we kind of saw in the first half, if you plug in talent like they have at Florida State into that system, it's going to be successful. And in some ways it was. I know it kind of stalled in the second half. I don't. I think Kendall Bryles, uh, you might have mentioned Kendall Bryles got a little frustrated, a little over-aggressive late in the game when those deep passes weren't landing, but I didn't think it looked terrible. And at the end of the day, Florida State scored 45 points against ULM, too. It should be enough to win. I think the overall issue with the program is it's not necessarily the offense or some of the promises that you could see potentially paying off down the line. It's the fact that it's just like a mess. Like We had plays last night where Florida State receivers were facing the wrong way, uh, Florida State turned the ball over three times. It got shredded by a team that hasn't had a winning record since 2011. And I want to point out the defense was supposed to be the strength entering the game. And when you kind of stack those issues on top of a week in which Willie Taggart essentially had to deal with dehydration questions the entire time based on something he said in a team-friendly radio show, and you just look, have the looks of a program that's a bit of a dumpster fire right now. And I, I still kind of agree with you. I think potentially Florida state is talented enough to turn this around. And there have been like peaks of potential success on the line, but like, it's just a program right now that's getting mocked for good reason. And I think a lot of it is self-inflicted. Yeah. Next week they go on the road to have to deal with a very good Bronco Mendenhall defense, uh, and the Virginia Cavaliers. So that'll be interesting. Um, and things only get tough from there. They're, they're, ACC schedule is pretty front-loaded. They've got Louisville, NC State, and Clemson at Clemson, at Wake Forest. So, man, that that's, I mean, that's pretty tough for a team that's had the problems that Florida State has had early in the season. Uh, if 
you know, I, I don't, I don't know what Willie Taggart's record has to be coming out of that stretch, but you'd imagine it would have to be above 500 for Seminoles fans to be feeling good about where the team is in his second year. So, uh, Chris, let's move on now to the Heisman stock index here. Um, again, we are not here to talk about Tua hanging. 400 yards and five touchdowns against whatever sad sack Alabama played this week. We're, we're just really interested on interested in players who moved the needle, who are, who are jumping onto our radar after having not been there at all, or showing us something that makes us think that they are more serious contenders than we previously thought. And I guess as the season goes on, maybe we'll start talking about some discipline, disappointing players too. Uh, but, uh, so, I mean, we started the show talking about Joe Burrow. Uh, let's start our last segment talking about Joe Burrow. It's, it, it's, it feels wild that we're sitting here talking about a LSU quarterback as a legit Heisman contender, but I feel like that's where we are right now. The dude looked like an NFL quarterback and he was throwing it all over the park with confidence and deep downfield too. Like Texas's passing attack was a little bit more of a side to side run after the catch, not totally, but comparatively, but LSU was just going deep and it was working and uh, he looked incredible. And I think, I, I don't know if he had like a Heisman moment in that, but maybe it's third and 17 where he evades pressure and makes a throw to keep the drive alive and keeps Texas from getting the ball back with the, with the chance to take the lead. Yeah. I, I think he had a Heisman moment last night for sure. I, I mean, he's going to have to have several more to get through that schedule, but he looks fantastic. And I, I think the interesting thing with Joe Burrow is people criticized him pretty soundly a season ago for some of his struggles. Uh, he completed, I believe just 57% of his passes last season. People kind of wondered what the hype was for around Joe Burrow, which to me, was kind of odd. Cause if you talk to people in and around kind of the Ohio state program, Joe Burrow really did push Dwayne Haskins to the brink in that competition. Joe is considered a guy who could have started Ohio state and been extremely successful. And, I think part of that is the system Ohio State employed, kind of that power spread. But part of it was also Joe. And I think Joe, a season ago, came to an offense and a style that didn't necessarily fit his strengths. Um, he was asked to stand in the pocket a little bit more. He wasn't asked to move around. Um, he just kind of wasn't given the opportunities on the outside to spread it around like he would have been at Ohio State. I think what you're seeing this year is an unlocked Joe Burrow. And it's kind of – it's extremely successful and I think we're seeing a lot of that promise that we heard from Ohio State from his time there kind of come to fruition this year as a senior and I I would be shocked if he wasn't in the Heisman conversation at season's end because he he looked legitimately like an NFL prospect last night and like LSU couldn't really run the ball against Texas and he was still able to light it up through the air it's just just really incredible and, and surreal. Um, and I, I've also got Sam Ellinger on here, even in a losing effort, um, because I come away from that thinking that I don't know if there is any 
college football playoff contender or conference title contender that needs a single player for their offense to work quite like Texas does. I mean, he was he was their passing attack and their running game. Uh, and he's going to have plenty of opportunities. And, and, and as I was saying earlier, that was against a really good LSU secondary. I, I know everybody like wants to make fun of like take something away from that game, not being good defense, but like LSU's defenders were making good plays. And so was Texas's offense uh, is, is the way I saw that. Um, and that's maybe the, I'm looking at the schedule. Yeah. Pretty confident. That's the best defense they're going to face all season. Um, and so beat Oklahoma in the red river rivalry. And uh, I mean, I'm feeling pretty good about Sam Ellinger as a as a Heisman front runner if they assuming they take care of business against the teams they're supposed to beat. Yeah, and your point about the most important play for any offense is I think a really sound one. Texas does not work the way Texas functions without Sam. He's just so critical in the run game um with what they do with kind of their uh, power draws with the quarterback. Um he is developed as a passer to the point where I think he is one of the more dangerous quarterbacks in the country with his arm as well uh i was uh looking this up for a story i'm writing for tomorrow but sam ellinger is also the first passer to throw for over 400 yards against lsu since 2011 so that is a defense that does not give up numbers like that often and sam i know he was probably the second best quarterback in the field last night but he's gonna have opportunities like you said as the season goes along and if texas ends up winning a big 12 championship i don't think there's much question who is the most important person uh, to that happening. And I think he's going to pick up steam as the season goes along, especially if they can upset Oklahoma and uh, Dallas. I think I had Sam penciled in as a uh, Heisman finalist coming into the year, and I still feel really good about it as an exiting this LSU game. So uh, our third guy we want to talk about here in our Heisman segment is Washington State quarterback Anthony Gordon. Uh, Mike Leach has this weird thing going on right now where he's just able to cycle in like a redshirt senior quarterback you've never heard of after redshirt senior quarterback you've never heard of and have a really effective passing game and still hasn't done it against a quality opponent. New Mexico State in week one, Northern Colorado in week two, but we're looking at 884 yards passing and nine touchdowns already with 11.9 yards per attempt for Anthony Gordon. And as we were saying earlier, the Cougs looking like they're going to have a chance to be one of the best teams in the Pac-12 North or at least be playing meaningful football toward possibly winning the Pac-12 North uh, late into November, December. Yeah, and... uh I, I think given the system that Mike Leach employs, uh, that is good enough to keep Washington State and uh, at least contention status every year moving forward, and you're going to see them contending in November. And your point about Mike Leach kind of finding senior quarterbacks is a good one. Um, he's had a lot of success with guys who have sat and wait sat and waited for their turn. I believe guys like Cliff Kingsbury and B.J. Simons were uh, one or two year starters who sat for three or four years in a system really learned it. As we talked about earlier, the air raids all based on timing and reads and kind of knowing the matchups before the defense can adjust and kind of getting the ball out quickly and all of those things, 
help or, or develop some time. And I think that's kind of what you're seeing with Anthony Gordon, who's been a part of that system for five years. And he beat out a pretty high profile transfer from Eastern Washington, Gabe Gage. I'm sorry. I never pronounced his last name, but he did beat out a pretty high profile transfer from Washington, from Eastern Washington. And uh, he's going to continue to put up numbers like this all year. I think there's a bit of a bias against Mike Leach quarterback. Yeah, I was going to say against him. Yeah. But, uh, if Was- but if Washington State is 11 and one at season's end, I don't see a reason why he couldn't be in the Heisman conversation, much like Gardner Minshew was last year. Sure. And I was kind of, as I was kind of thinking about system, the whole system quarterback thing. And uh, Jalen Hurts did not make our group this week just because he didn't play an impressive enough opponent. But with kind of taking that system quarterback thing from Leach to Oklahoma, do you think we'll get, if if Jalen Hurts is a front runner deep into the season, do you think we'll get to a point where people will start using almost Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray against Jalen as in it kind of like takes away from the impressiveness of what he's doing because Lincoln Riley is able to just kind of plug and play these quarterbacks. Yeah, I I think so. At least eventually we're going to get to that argument. Uh, I think the difference there is Jalen's going to end up with, I would guess anywhere between 900 and 1200 yards rushing. Um, I know Kyler had pretty impressive rushing totals, but I think Jalen will do it a little bit differently. And those other two quarterbacks mm. did. I don't know if it's going to necessarily look the same. Right. So I think I think we saw a little bit of that against Houston. Yeah. But if you're just talking about a pure numbers perspective, we see voter fatigue sometimes, I think. And I think you could see that with an Oklahoma quarterback for sure. <laughs> All right, Chris. Well, thanks for subbing in here on our recap edition of the College Football Daily while Trey is off gallivanting in, in Clemson. Uh, probably still on the field, having rushed the field after the win, as, as they always do. Um, that's going to do it for today's episode of the College Football Daily. For Chris Hummer, I'm Connor Tapp, and we'll see you bright and early on Tuesday, maybe Monday, if something wild happens on Sunday night, but probably not, uh, for the next edition of the College Football Daily. College Football Daily.